Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to go ahead and uh, jump in here. Uh, we're starting a brand new sermon series this, uh, this morning. And uh, I'll say a few words about the sermon series itself. But I want to go ahead and read the passages first and then we'll dig in. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. This is probably a very familiar passage to many of you if you grew up in church. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been Faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well, then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then we're going to read a passage from the Old Testament. It's actually the last book in the Old Testament, book of Malachi. Okay? Malachi chapter 3, verse 5 to verse 9. It says, So I will come near to you. This is God speaking for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive their aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, for those of you, listen, let me just stop right here, who are familiar with that passage because you know it's coming, you know, it's where God says, you robbed me, so on and so forth. I noticed a connection this week preparing for this message that I hadn't seen before. What we just said right here in verses 5 and 6 actually is very much connected to what God will say in verses 7, 8, and 9. Okay? Watch this. So, 
I, I, the Lord, do not change. Verse 6, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then God says, will a man rob me? And yet, you rob me. Now, let me tie this together. When God says, yet you rob me, and they say, how do you rob me? And then God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Here's the point. When God says you're robbing me, it has ramifications for what he said in verses 5 and 6 and 7. And we'll come back to that. We are starting sermons on stewardship. We're calling it total money makeover. Two things right away. Uh, there's about 70, 80 folks who are members of our church. Uh, at the end of January in front of whom I stood and I proudly declared, I will not preach on stewardship this year. They all went, yay. And the reason why I said that is because, and you guys will know, we have a building campaign this year. We are in the process of trying to purchase a building. We're in the process of trying to plant a church. We have lots of financial needs. And here's the way I thought. I said, you know, there are going to be some very cynical people out there who are going to kind of connect the whole stewardship series with, well, they need money to build this building. They need money to plant the church. And so, (laughs) to which I want to say, yeah, that's why I'm preaching on this. And I just throw it out there, okay? Because I'll tell you what's happening in our church this year. Our attendance has skyrocketed. Our giving has not. You know what that means? That means a small, tiny fraction of this church is literally carrying the financial load. And I don't like that. And I'll just tell you flat out. And we're going to go into that more. We need to address that. We need to address that. For those of you that are just sitting out there going, well, why is that? It matters because everything that new community is about and does cannot happen without faithful giving of God's people. Money doesn't fall out of the sky. Okay? So if you go, well, they're just doing this because I'm telling you, yeah, that's why I'm talking about this, okay? Because we want to plant more churches and we want to reach out to this community, okay? But secondly, and more importantly, I, I, I can't not preach on this because you guys know I preach on sex and sexuality every year because it's close to God's heart about how Christians live that out. And if we don't live that out well in biblical ways, then it not only affects us, but it affects the community around us. There are other things that I preach on that's integral to the Christian life. And for me to go, well, I'm just kind of concerned that there's like two people out there who are going to go, well, poo-poo on Christians. They all ask for money. But you know what? If that's you, I, too bad. You know, I, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing that I can do. to, 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 to not, I, I am trying to say this morning that that what I'm going to talk about for the next three weeks has very little to do with me asking you for your money. Matter of fact, let's just dig right in, uh, d- dig into this, and I'll say this. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to know uh, Jesus doesn't want your money. Do you hear me? If you're not a Christian, Jesus isn't asking for your money. I'm not asking for your money. If you're not a Christian, don't hear anything that I'm saying today and what Jesus says today as Jesus or me asking for your money. If you're not a Christian, we don't want your money. Jesus wants something else from you, but it's not your money. Okay? Is that cool? If you're a Christian, though, this morning, 
I wouldn't say it like that. If you're a Christian this morning, let me just go and say a couple of things. I have so much that I need to say. It's the first sermon later on. Look, I don't like preaching on this. Tell you the truth. You know why? Nobody leaves New Community Church when I preach on stewardship singing. You know, people don't leave church going, woohoo, I feel so good about myself. You know, people don't, people walk out of here going out. Because here's the thing. If I do my job this morning, I'm going to convince you of at least these three things. I'm going to convince you that you're really, really wealthy. I'm going to convince you of that, that you're really, really wealthy, you're really rich, to which you're going, you have no idea who you're talking to. I do know who I'm talking to. Secondly, I'm going to convince you that your money's not yours. Okay? So two things right there, you're going, I am already, like, not interested. Okay? And third, get this, third, if those two things aren't offensive, third, I'm going to convince some of you that you and I are actually contributing to cosmic evil. See, nobody leaves Stewardship Service Series singing. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have a flood of people coming up to me and going, we love what you said today. You know, people walk in and go. <laughs> so I, I personally don't like it. However, here's why I, I need to do this. Uh, I, I noticed something interesting. By the way, let me just again. If you're not a Christian here, the reason why I don't talk about stewardship, if I preached on stewardship and money and possession as much as Jesus did, which is 29% of his parables, if I preached on it as much as Jesus did, I wouldn't have a church. I know. I live in America. People don't like being told what to do with their money and possessions. However, however, especially if you're not a Christian, here's the reason why I, I need to preach on this, okay, Christian or not. Look at, look at verse, uh, uh, Luke actually, chapter 12. Let me, let me take you. Luke chapter 12. Is that right here? Yep. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. I, I just, I put this passage up there. When a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, okay? Now, you guys, everybody look up here. I'll tell you why this is significant. Jesus is talking about money and possessions in Luke 12, and he's talking to two groups of people. He's talking first to his disciples, He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, this is integral to you as a Christian. This is so tied to your heart. This is so tied to, to how you live your entire life that I need to speak to you. But check this out. He is speaking so that non-Christians or crowd can overhear. Are you tracking? So he's talking to Christians very intentionally about money, but he's also talking to non-Christians, and he's saying, what I want the disciples to hear, I want you all to overhear. Because he's saying to non-Christians, what I have to say about money and possessions is very much tied to what it means to be a Christian. So if you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, he's intentionally saying to the crowd, I want you to overhear what I'm saying. Are you tracking, right? So, so if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian this morning, again, I want you to overhear the conversation I'm going to have with Christians because I want them to hear. But what I want you to overhear is this, as the crowd, I want you to overhear that you cannot become a Christian, you cannot be right related to Jesus, you cannot know what it means to follow him without knowing what he has to say about money. Okay? So I'm going to do that for a certain series. I'm not talking, Jesus isn't asking for your money, not Christian. I'm not asking for your money if you're not a Christian, but I want you to overhear because you cannot become a Christian. I'm telling you. We'll see this more next week. Unless you overhear and know what it means as a Christian to be related to money in the right way. But if you're a Christian, you need to hear what Jesus is saying about money and possessions because 
I'm realizing, you guys, and here's, here's the insight for me. I'm realizing that I, I've got this all wrong. See, I've looked at money and possessions, and Jesus talking about money, and stewardship as one of the duties of the Christian life. But you know what I'm realizing? I'm realizing it's not one of the duties. Actually, it's, it's related to everything that we do. Stewardship and giving generously and radically as a Christian is not, you know, like evangelism or prayer, helping the poor. It actually integrates everything that a Christian is and everything a Christian does. Let me give you an example. Let's look at what a Christian is. What a Christian is. Look at the cardinal virtues of a Christian. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Why is it that we're not more radically generous? Let's be real here, okay? Why is it that we're more radically generous? Faith. We lack faith. We're not more generous because we lack faith. We're afraid. We're worried. Oh, the U.S. economy is in a recession and people are losing their job. We think God is dumb. We think God's up there going, the U.S. economy is in a recession? What? What happened? We think God is surprised. We think God's surprised. People are having a hard time finding jobs. We think that God doesn't know. And, And so here's the thing. We worry. We lack faith. And so we don't give generously. Can we just be honest? How we perceive our money, how we perceive our possessions, how we perceive radical generosity has very much to do with faith because it's about trust. And we say that we're people of trust. We trust God with our eternity. But I can't trust God with my finances because, you know, that's kind of in over his head. Faith. Hope. Hope. What is hope? Hope is what you and I look to, depend on, base our identity, our value, our significance, and our worth. That's what hope is. Why is it that we're not more radically generous? Is Christ your hope, your foundation, your identity, your validation? Or is it where you live? Or is it what you wear? Or is it the restaurants you frequent? What's the source of your hope? Again, you know why we're worried? It's not just like a faith. We're worried because we're worried about losing something that's valuable to us. We don't give generously, radically, because there's something else that's more important than Christ that we place our hope in. Faith, hope, love. Why don't we give generously? Because we don't love. We lack love. Can we just be real? We don't give generously because as Christians, we lack love. We are insensitive or not in tune with incredible needs out there. And can we just be really honest? Some of us, we don't want to know the needs out there. We don't want to know. We don't want to see it, you know? That uncomfortable scene comes on television. Doop, change the channel. Why? We don't want to be reminded that there are tremendous needs out there. Why don't we give more radically? Because we lack love. Are you tracking? You cannot be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, live the life that he calls us to live, embody the character of God of faith, hope, and love, unless you somehow are able to deal with this issue of money and finances. It's hard to argue, right? See, the reality is, you could say, I have faith. I'm going, show me your faith is real. I have hope. Show me your hope is real. I have love. Show me your love is real. How? Give me something that's concrete. Give me something that's tangible. Give me something that I can see. What about a Christian, what a Christian does? Can we, can we genuinely live a Christian life and, and, and live out the Christian life without, without giving, without money and materials and possessions? Think about it. 
The scripture says that the entirety of the Christian life and what we do is embodied in loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. Serving God, serving each other, and serving... Can, can you do that without opening up your possessions? The early church lit the Roman world on fire because they gave radically and generously. And when non-Christians looked at them and said, how do you know God is real in your life? They simply pointed to their lifestyle and said, how can we not be gracious and generous like this when this God that we serve has been this gracious and this generous to us? How do we testify to the hurting and broken world out there that we're really serious about our relationship with God, really serious about our relationship with each other and the world without giving? Now, let me just say this. For some of you guys that are heavily invested in issues of justice and you're working towards it with your time, your energy resources, phenomenal. However, what does your checkbook look like? What does your credit card statement look like? Is it congruent with the lifestyle that you say you live? Hmm? Is it congruent with the life? See, it's already real quiet. It's already like the energy is being sucked out. You know, it's like, oh, gosh. A hopeful, uplifting message. Well, I'm going to depress you even more, okay? Okay, here. Look, the, the bottom line is this. We cannot say that our relationship with God is real. When we say, God, you can't be Lord of this life. You can't be Lord of my family. We cannot say, my love for you, brothers and sisters in need, in Christ, are real. When we say, good luck when they're in need, and don't open up our resources to them. Read the book of Acts. We cannot say, I love the world, and I'm about serving the world, when there's nothing that's sacrificial about our material possessions and our lives. Let me put it this way. We cannot say that we're going to be about transforming the city unless we can say we are about transforming our hearts and our lives that results in radical generosity. What we can do corporately for the city, okay, what we can do corporately for the city through our ministry is very much determined by what we do individually for the ministry through our resources, through our finances. You committed to this church? You committed to the mission of this church? I'm going to ask you a blunt question. What are you doing about it? In order for us to even grasp this sermon series and, and move forward, we have to come to grips with a major paradigm shift. And the paradigm, <laughs> you know, from now on, every time I want to say paradigm shift, because apparently I say that a lot, right? I'm going to go, everybody say it with me, paradigm shift. Okay, major paradigm shift. And that is this. How, how many of you guys think you're genuinely poor? Of course, nobody's going to raise their hand, right? There's one person raised after I said all that, right? Let me say, how many of you guys want to be rich? Raise your hand. How many of you? Be honest. Thank you. Sometimes, yeah. How, how many of you guys, how many of you guys, 
How many of you guys think you're genuine? So now, here, here's, here's something that, 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 that's very interesting to me, okay? In order for, I think, us to come around this sermon series, you and I have to come to grips with the fact that we have to stop asking the question of how can I get more money? How can I make more money? How can I have more money to spend? How can I have more money in my bank account? How can I da-da-da-da-da? And we got to actually change and reframe the question of what am I going to do with all that I have? What am I going to do with all this money I have? You say you don't believe me? Let me go and show you some statistics, okay? By the way, you're not going to be able to get what I'm going to do for the next few minutes if you don't understand and embrace the worldwide story. If your only perspective is Chicago, if your only perspective is where you live here in America, because by the way, do you guys know that when it comes to material possessions, we live in an unreal world? How many of you guys, like, people don't live in the rest of the world, like people live in the United States. Is that news to anybody? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, he, here's here's some, some that we have to come around. Unless we get out of Chicago mentally, unless we're able to see the worldwide story, and according to the worldwide story, here's what we have to come to grips with, you guys. A worldwide story says that the question that we're asking in this country of how do I have more money, how do I pay for that, how do I get that toy, how do I spend more money on that, how do I make sure that I have enough to that, that question is absolutely ludicrous when we hear the worldwide story. Let me, let me give you what I mean. Uh, if you're a college student here this morning, you think you're poor, right? College student, here's how much you make a year, college students. You make $11,200 a year. Okay, do you know that? College students, do you know that? And you go, how did you come to that number? How did you come to that? Did you just figure, just make it up? Yeah, I just made it up, okay? You make, no, I didn't just make it up. I didn't just make it up. Here, here's, here's, here's how I came to $11,200, okay? You work at Starbucks. How many work at Starbucks? Okay. Okay, nobody works at Starbucks. Okay, there's two people. If you're a college student that works at Starbucks, uh, from what I've heard, you make about 150 bucks a week. That are almost about $600 a month. How much is that in a year? You do your math. It's about $7,200 a year, okay? $7,200 a year. Now, you make $7,200 a year, but, you know, you go home for Christmas. You get a Christmas job. You go home for summers. You get a summer job. And you also go to visit your grandma. Your grandma likes you because you're actually a good kid. Grandma gives you a little gift, a little something, something on the side. Add to your $7,200 a year, you get about $2,000 a year, okay? $2,000 a year, an extra bonus. And then on top of that, you add a little extra something, something that you get on the side from God knows what you do. Anyway, so you do your math. I'm just being silly, okay? $11,200 a year. My point is, you look at that and go, oh my gosh, $11,200 a year. Who could live on that? That is just so, you know what $11,200 is? Worldwide story. That puts you in the 86.7% of average income in the entire world. You say, I don't understand statistics. What the heck does that mean? That means that 86 point, <laughs> let me tell you. That means, uh, church, say it with me today. That means that 86.6% of the entire world makes less money than you as a college student living on $11,200 a year. You say, I still don't understand what that means. Okay. On a typical Sunday in our church, there's about 500 people. 500 people on a typical Sunday in this room. If there's 500 of you in here, okay, and the world represents 6.2 billion people, 500, as a college student making $11,200, you make more money than everybody but just the people in this front row. Would you guys stand up here, this row right here? Everybody just front row, stand up here. Say, just, just, just for a second, just stand up for me. There, yeah, right here, right, all of you guys, all of you guys. Just, just stand up here, just stand up here, okay? Just, you guys, too, just stand up. Right, right, this way, right. 
If you're a college student making $11,200, you make more money in the entire world, 6.2 billion people, than everybody except this right here. $11,200. Go ahead and you can sit down. Okay. Anybody, anybody making $100,000 a year? Okay. All the women just went, where? I, I'm not going to. Oh, man, that was dangerous. I actually, I actually saw two hands, but I'm not going to tell you who they were. They might get mauled after Sunday service. Okay, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. $100,000 a year. I'm not even going to. Look, how many of you guys, average income, average income, I'm going to put it up there, okay? I know it's a little higher today in 2000. Average income in America is $36,934. Average income, how much a family makes. It's about $3,077 a month. You know what that puts you in? Average earner. And that puts you in the 97 percentile in the world. That means making the average income, 96.9% of the entire world makes less money than you. You make more money than everybody in this room except like 40 people at $37,000 a year. You make $40,000 a year, you know what that puts you in? $40,000 puts you in? 98.7%. I'm sorry, $50,000. 98.7%. If you make $50,000 a year, that means that 97.6% of the entire people make, that's, if you make $50,000 a year, you make more money in the entire world than five people in this room. You make more money than five people in this entire room at $50,000 a year. Oh, poor college. Really? I only make 40. Really? $50,000 a year puts you in the 90. You know what? If you make a million dollars, you're not even in this room. <laughs> like both literally and figuratively, okay? I know. I know. The poverty line for singles in America, listen, is $9,555 a year. In other words, as a single person, and you're going, that's me. I knew it. I'm a, listen, this is about 90,000. Do you know what that puts it? Still, in the poverty, look, the poor in this country, and I'm not downplaying the need, tremendous even in this community, but the poor in this country live indoors. The poor in this country have electricity. The poor, in this clo- the poor in this country have clothes to wear. I've been to Kibera Village in Kenya. I've been to Smoky Mountain, the heart of Manila. And I've seen poverty. That's poverty. People living on less than a dollar a day. You still think you're poor? 98.7% of the entire world makes less money than you, making $50,000 a year, three years removed from college. We have to change our perspective from how do I make money because I got to get, we got to change our perspective from that to what do I do with all this money that I have? 
the parable. Now, let's get into the, the, the parable that Jesus tells in, 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 in Matthew 25. Uh, the parable would have been easily understood by the listeners of Jesus' day because it was very relevant. They were familiar with rich landowners who entrusted their property to their servants and, and would go away. Uh, uh, here, here, here's something we have to realize. A talent in the ancient world uh, was actually a monetary weight. And it was equivalent to about 60 to 90 pounds, okay? 60 to 90 pounds, depending on the metal. So here's the thing. First and foremost, when the, when the, early, when the listeners of Jesus' day heard him talking about talent, they didn't think, oh, what do I do with my time and with my... They immediately thought wealth, possessions, stuff. Because I know that this passage preaches about what do you do with your talents, and that includes your time. Jesus is talking about money, possessions, wealth, mammon. Okay, here's the thing that I didn't realize, depending on the middle in question, the value of one talent was equivalent to 6,000 days worth of wages. One talent was 20 years worth of work. So five talents is a lot of money. So it was one talent. But here's the most important thing about this passage that you and I need to come to grips with in the context. The context of this is kingdom living. Everybody say kingdom living. Kingdom li- The context is kingdom living. What do I mean? The entire chapter of Matthew 25 is about the kingdom of God. 25.1, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God will be like. Why is that significant? This entire chapter is about how you live kingdom lives as kingdom people. And then when he comes to this parable in verse 14, he's literally saying this. You want to know what it means to live kingdom lives? Do you want to know what it means to be a faithful steward of the kingdom? Do you want to know how to live faithfully from my first coming to my second coming? What are you doing with your money? He's saying that the time in between, his first coming, second coming, the time between the ushering of the kingdom and the fulfillment of the kingdom, that time, first and foremost, preeminently is about stewardship. This is huge! This is at the heart of everything that Jesus was about when he talked about the kingdom. He's saying, what are you doing with the issue of stewardship? That's about the kingdom. This is huge. I mean, it puts it in the context, doesn't it? So here's the thing. It's not just the faulty theology of, well, Jesus died for me so I can go to heaven, so I'm just going to wait around until the rapture happens. It's not just about that. Jesus is saying, you right now have a job to do. See, I've begun this ushering in the kingdom, and I'm beginning to renovate and renew the entire creation. I'm about that. You say you're about that? Yes, I'm about that. He's saying, what are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your possessions? What are you doing with the wealth and and the things that I've entrusted to you? this, This is huge to me. This is huge to me. Okay? It's preeminently a time about stewardship. When you talk about the the kingdom of God. Because literally what he's saying is this. You cannot be about the kingdom unless you somehow deal with the issue of resources. You cannot be about the kingdom unless you somehow come around to grips with the fact that possessions, wealth, and money play a vital role in how you do kingdom work. So what has he said? These are... These are points, this is kind of a laying foundation. These are points that we'll cover throughout the next two, three weeks as we talk about stewardship. So these are broad stroke points. He's saying this in this parable. One, stewardship is investing God's resources for kingdom mission. Stewardship is about investing God's resources. The emphasis are being, you guys, God's resources for kingdom mission. Verse 14, he entrusted his property 
to them. Verse 20, and the servant says, you entrusted me, God, with five, five talents, master. Verse 22, you entrusted me with two talents, master. Verse 25, here's what belongs to you, even the wicked, lazy servant says. Verse 27, you should have put my money over and over and over again. The glaring message in this parable is this, everything that you have, God owns it. Everything that you have, he's entrusted to you. Everything that you have belongs to him. Do you believe it? See, it seems incongruous to some of us because we say, I've worked really, really hard for everything that I have, Peter. You don't understand. But even a little bit moment, little moment of clarity will help us see that everything that we have is a result of God. What do I mean? Are you wealthy because you grew up in a good family? Did you have anything to do with the family you grew up in and born into? What's the only reason why you didn't grow up or born into a poor farmer family in Tibet in 12th century? You're born into the family you were born into, into the time that you were born into, and given the family inheritance resource that you were given that allowed you to be wealthy is because of what, God? On the other extreme, somebody says, I worked extremely hard. I didn't grow up in a good family. I grew up in a poor family. And I'm going, well, who gave you the health, the mind, the circumstances, the opportunities, the connections, the networking? Oh, yeah, and, and, and yeah, that can, and who gave you and arranged all these events? Accident? Coincidence? It allowed you to be in a position where you were. Opportunity, circumstances, everything that you have. This teaching is so simple, you guys, and so integrated throughout Scripture. It's found everywhere. Let me just show you. Let me just show you some of these passages. Exodus 19.5, God says, the whole earth is mine. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And for some of us who think that we've earned our treasures because of our own abilities and hard work, Deuteronomy 8, 8, 17, 18, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced with wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Haggai 2.8, the silver and mine, so silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And by the way, for those of us who sometimes act like God owes us something, listen to what God says in Job 41.11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. What you and I do with our stuff speaks volumes about whether we believe that we have been entrusted with his resources for his kingdom mission. If you and I truly believe that God owns everything that we have as king, as ruler, as sovereign one, it would radically affect how we shop, where we shop, how much we shop, where we go eat, how much we eat, the kinds of things that we do. You, you ever notice My, my behavior changes when, when, when it's not something that I own. Let me give you an example. I'm a terrible driver. It dri you ever seen my Honda Accord? It's got nicks and scratches. And my, my wife says, you are the worst driver in the world. You know? Something happens, though, when I <laughs> drive somebody else's car. It's almost like I become a different... I get into somebody else's car, and you know what I do? I check the rear view mirror. I put on my seatbelt... And I drive slower, I look to my right, I look to my left, I make sure when I'm back in, you know, I don't bump the car behind me just to make sure, oh, I don't have any more room, I guess, you know, <laughs> and bump the car in front of me going, well, how would it change your perspective if you knew that it's not yours? How would you, how would you spend your money 
if you knew that it wasn't God, it wasn't yours, and God owned it. How would you spend it? Your position? How would, what would you do with the resources that you have if you knew that you didn't own it, but that it's God's? You see what I mean? Would you be more careful? Would you think twice before you unloaded those, you know, This is so random, but a thought went through my mind, and, and I'm guilty of this too, okay? A thought went through my mind recently. I opened my closet. I stood there staring at it, and I thought, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> Time to go shopping. Can anybody relate? Okay, one person. Thank you very much. You guys are so rude this morning. <laughs> Man. You know what? Would it change our perspective? If, okay, let me just take this notch higher. Think of it this way. Uh, what if we actually thought, in terms of this, we're money managers who are given charge of investors and their resources to us? Because that's literally what God says. You know? I talked to a friend of mine. He's here at church today. He deals with billions of dollars of other people's money. Okay? Billions of dollars of other people's money. Now, what would happen if he thought, I've got billions of dollars of my money. And so that latest toy that I wanted to get, I'm going to get it. What would happen to that? Think of it this way. Would that person be accused of being stingy? Or would that be robbery? Or would that be a crime? Are you tracking? See, see the paradigm shift? See, when we use stuff just for us and we don't do, we don't use it and we don't spend it for God's kingdom purposes, we think, I'm just being miserly, I'm being cheap. The Bible says you're not being cheap miserly, you're being a thief. Because you're spending things that doesn't belong to you. And you go to jail because it's called fraud. I wonder what would happen if literally that's what happened. You know, there was a heavenly securities and exchange commission, you know. <laughs> and it came calling on us going, why are you spending other people's money like it's yours? What would happen if you went home today? See, I'm going to be very practical with that sermon series. And you looked at, you took out your checkbook, your credit card, and you mentally made a note. Provided by and belonging to God for his use only. What if you went home today and the latest 10 purchases you bought, what if you went home today and you mentally discreetly labeled it in your mind, provided for and belonging to God for his use only? I tell you, some of you guys, you literally need to do this. You need to write a notepad, provided for, belonging to God, stick it on your credit card, put it in your wallet. So every time you take it out to use it, you're reminded, provided for and belonging to God for his use only. I just I'm bad at this. Just be honest with you guys. I'm bad at this. This is major conviction for me. This is major conviction for me. And I'll talk more about this next week. I have a really, really hard time, A, perceiving that everything belongs to God. And secondly, really have a hard time perceiving that stuff that I do matters because. See, Stewardship is about investing God's resources for kingdom mission. That means that your perspective, just like that money manager says, my, my goal in life is to invest in the wishes, the values, and interests of my investor, of my client. It's not about me. And a kingdom person, a kingdom steward says, God, you have entrusted me with all this, all this. God, what do you want to me to do with this? What is your agenda? What are your priorities? What are your goals, God? 
And we no longer say stuff like, what do, how much of my money can I keep? And give as little to God as possible. You know, just enough so that he doesn't strike me, so he doesn't like punish me like I lose my job. I know some of us think like this, right? I lose my job or, or that. Instead of thinking like, how, how about if we change the language to how much of God's money, how much of God's money can I keep and spend the rest of it for his purposes? See, when you look at it this way, tithing ain't so bad. Can you imagine an investor that comes to you and says, you get to spend 90% of what I own, and you give me back 10%. That's not so bad, is it? But we don't look at it that way. Our perspective is 100% of this I own. And so the 10% of giving back to God is like a God tax. Here's a God tax. (laughs) Secondly, stewardship. It's about investing God's resources for kingdom mission. Everybody say kingdom mission. Kingdom mission. Do you know that Americans last year paid out $65 billion in credit card interest alone? Can I say that again? Americans last year paid out $65 billion on interest, just interest alone. They came out to about $88 per family per month on just interest, credit card interest, about a thousand. So it comes out about a thousand dollars a year per family. Interest. Interest. You're not actually paying in the, to the pay the, the interest alone. So in this room, that means there was $500,000 of money, interest. And God is pulling his hair out, if he has hair. He's saying, that's just, that's just throwing money away. That's just, that's just throwing money away. Do you realize? $80, $90 on interest alone, that's like, it goes to nowhere. It's just poof. Poof. It's like burning money. God's going, ah! Half a million dollars just in this room alone on just interest. And God says, kingdom mission. Kingdom mission. Things that bring me delight. Things that bring me joy. Things that bring the master happiness. Invest in that. You say, what are those? Here's at least four scripture talks about. One, Worship, witness, and nurture of the people of God corporate. So it is giving to the mission of God, the ministry of God. When you get, some of you guys, some of you guys walk in here and go, wow, new community. They own a beautiful building. Guess what? We don't own this building. We're renting it. So how do you pay for it? <laughs> it's supporting the ministries of the church. Sporting ministers in the church. It's giving to build places of worship as we're venturing out to do. And the scripture says these are absolutely valid ways to give. Listen, let me just say this. And this is dangerous for me to say. I will never stand up here and say, you have to give all 10% of your income to our... No. First of all, first of all, that's not even biblical to force people to say to the local church. God just says give 10% minimally to his causes. That means that you can give to these other needs as well. Secondly, the poor. Immediately after this parable follows, of course, you find Matthew 20, 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where God says, take care of the hungry, take care of the immigrant, take care of the sick, take care of the prisoners. And it's not coincidence. He's saying kingdom mission is caring for the poor. Here's another one. It's caring for individuals with material needs. Galatians 6, send do good to all, especially those of faith, people that God puts in your path. One of the things I'm amazed at, one of the things I'm amazed at in this church, and I'm not going to 
point people out by name because I'm sure they'll be embarrassed. One of the things I'm amazed at, you guys, is that we actually have families in our church that take in homeless folks to live with them. One of the amazing things about our church is last year when an eighth grader girl got shot and was killed in the community and the parents and the, other, the mom had, and, and the siblings needed to move to another place and needed rent, security deposit, we collected money and you guys gave $8,000. You guys are amazing at this. See, I don't want to just bash you guys. You guys are amazing at this. You, you, individual needs. I just got an email to, uh, this week, and I'm going I'm to share with you next week as well, about a family, a couple, young couple with no kids. The mom is about to give birth, and they're just about homeless. One bad series of events after another, and they're in tremendous need. And you know what? I don't even bat an eye. I know when I come up here and I go, we have a family in our, in our community, church community, who is in need of grocery money, who's in need of temporary housing, I have no doubt that you guys are going to give generously. That's the kind of church you are. That's the kind of church you are. And God says, that is investing in my kingdom mission. Here's another one. You ready? It says, uh, uh, Matthew 15, uh, caring for your family, caring for your aging parents, caring for your children. That is absolutely investing in God's values and God's mission. Now, I know this speaks very closely to Asians among here. This is one of the things I'm blessed with in terms of our culture, Right? God says investing in caring for your parents, your aging parents, your siblings, your family, that is an absolutely biblical thing. Look, some of you guys, the first place you need to look at when you say, who can I give to? Look at your family. All right, let's get even real practical here. In a few weeks, you're going to get a nice gift from the government. It's going to be called a tax rebate check, right? I'm serious. I'm serious. See, this is very practical. Very, look, number one, when you get that check, some of you 300, some of you 500, some of you 700, some of you 1,300. When you get that check, first question, is that yours or is that God's? See, there's no lack of clarity here, right? It's, it's one, it's, is it yours or is it God's? And secondly, what are you going to do with that? Have you been waiting for it because, oh, man, the latest gadget, the latest toy, the latest tech thing that I wanted to get? I knew. What are you going to do with that money that you get? Whose is it? Number three, stewardship is about being faithful only with what you've been given. Only with what you've given. Why is this important? Because in a church like ours, there are people all over the spectrum here. There are a couple guys here who make $100,000 or more. And I won't tell you who they are, okay? Um, and there are some folks here who are single moms. We have people all over the spectrum in terms of income. We have people that are doing incredibly well. We have people who aren't doing well. The incredible thing and the blessing and the encouragement about kingdom stewardship is that God says, I want you to be faithful only with what I've been given to you. So you know what that means? It means you don't have to play the compare game. You don't have to look around and go, well, if I only had that guy's money or if I only had the education, went to that school, had that job, if I only had the network. God says, I've given you according to your ability, meaning in his wisdom, he has placed you in the place you're at and has given you the resources that you are able to handle. So you know what? Some of you have given five. Praise God for it. What does it say? Be faithful. Some of you have given two. God says, be faithful. Some of you have even given one. Some of us have been given like 0.5, 0.1, or 0.001, whatever the thing is. And God says, don't play the compare game. Whatever it is I've given you, be faithful with that. And that gives both freedom and responsibility. Freedom, why? Jesus never says, unless you give X amount of money, you know, he's saying, I honor that widow who puts two pennies much more than that rich tax collector. Who, he says, are you being faithful with what I've given to you? So if you're a poor college student making $11,000 a year, faithfulness to you means if I'm going to spend $15, $20 a week on extraneous things, I'm going to go ahead and tithe at least half of that 
and give to the local church or give to the poor and give to the needy. It's faithfulness what you've been given. So you know what? You don't need to be discouraged. You don't need to be discouraged. I'll tell you more about this next week. I got a $10,000 check from a 30-year-old in our church. 30-year-old, you know? And some of you are going, see, if I only had that money. No, I'll read his testimony for you next week. He started giving that generously when he was making $25,000, when he was making $30,000. He committed himself saying, regardless how much I make, this much is always belonging to God. And so therefore, and he's sticking with it. You know what that means? That means right now, if you can't even tie $10, see, we get hung up at the amount. $10, no big deal. $100, okay. $1,000, you know what I can do with the $10,000? Well, that's not even going to happen. Do you know why? Do you know why? We get hung up on numbers. In God's eyes, what is a dollar and what is a million dollars? It's all his. If you don't discipline yourself right now making very little and being faithful, you will never give generously when you have a lot. See how practical this is, right? Lastly, Stewardship, unfaithfulness, leads to cosmic evil. Let's talk about the cosmic evil, okay? Because <laughs> we got to come to Chris. We got to come to Chris with verse 30. We got to come to with verse 30. And, you know, and the harshness of it, because those of us that are like Jesus, love, grace, and he says, you will be cast out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We go, I don't like that. Weeping and gnashing of teeth found in Matthew 8, 12 and 22, 13 means separation from anything good, especially to God. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is being separated from anything that is especially God. And, and, and literally what Jesus is saying is this, you guys. It's very simple. He's saying if the kingdom of God and living of kingdom of life is about anything, it's about accountability. Everybody say that with me. Accountability. And he's forcing you and I. He's shocking us. He's forcing us to consider this in a way that says, wow, wow, I need to take that seriously. Yeah, you need to take that seriously. Now, why does he go off on this whole Weeping and gnashing of teeth and being cast out so on and so forth. Why the harshness of it? Why the seriousness of it? Because most of us that don't understand the context of it, we go, that's kind of harsh. I mean, yeah, it belongs to you and you've given it to me and I've got to be faithful to it, but you're overreacting, God. I mean, here's why we think that. Malachi chapter 3. When God says, you are robbing me to the Israelites, The word rob have puzzled Hebrew scholars for years because the word rob isn't steal or isn't take something that doesn't belong to you. Hebrew scholars have observed that the word rob literally means to pillage, to plunder, to rape. That's what it means to rob. It's it's, it's a very violent word. And God says to the Israelites, you're doing that to me. You're plundering and pillaging me. As, as an army plunders and pillage, pillages a helpless little town, a helpless, helpless little, little community. And God says to the Israelites, you're doing that to me. To which we go, how the heck are we doing that to God? How are mere mortal men and women robbing you, God, pillaging you and plundering you, God? And God says, in tithes and in offerings. Here's what God was saying. When you and I, God's people, hold God's resources, we hoard it for ourselves. We don't use it for the sake of the worldwide community. When we do that, God says, it's not just being stingy. It's not just being miserly. He says, you're, being, you're plundering. You're pillaging my good creation. How? The Hebrews and also Jesus understood a background, a context that you and I have to come to grips with. 
The Hebrews understood the world as not just an isolated place where people just kind of do their own thing. The Hebrews understood the entire world as a place that's webbed together, as a place that's interwoven, interconnected, and interdependent. The word that they used was the word shalom. And what the Hebrews believed is that the world that God created was a place that was meant to be lived in shalom. Shalom is universal flourishing. Shalom is webbing together of all these uh, components of our relationship with God, of our relationship with each other, and our relationship to creation in such a way that there is universal flourishing. There's harmony. There's peace. There's justice. There's, there's love for all. They envisioned a fabric. The Hebrews envisioned fabric. The way God intended A fabric. A beautiful fabric that's warm, beautiful fabric that's strong, beautiful fabric that protects, beautiful fabric that protects and and gives provision. The Hebrews considered and looked at the world as an interdependent, interconnected webbing of a thousand threads. Now here's the thing. If I stood up here and got a thousand threads and I just threw it on the ground, it wouldn't be a warm fabric. You know what it would be? It would be a thousand threads just bundled on top of each other and would be a mess. What makes these thousands of threads of fabric is that each of the fabric that represents you and me and all the resources we have have been interwoven, interconnected. It's gone over. It's gone under. There's been an interpenetration of all these threads in such a way there's a webbing together of the entire universe, webbing together the entire community so that there's universal flourishing. That's what the Hebrews intended, the, the thought, uh, looked at the world to be. Now, here's the thing. Sin enters the world. And the best way to picture what happened to the world is a world that was webbed together, a world that was interwoven, interconnected, began to disintegrate. Sin, political oppression, economic injustice. The world out there is a place where 1.3 billion people live in absolute poverty, less than a dollar a day. The world out there Three billion people live on less than $2 a day. The world out there, 70 million people are on the threshold of starvation every day. The world out there, 34,000 children die every day of hunger and preventable diseases. The world out there, 400 million people consume less than the minimum critical diet. The world out there, half of the children of the absolute poor don't live up to be five years old. You know what that is? That is a disintegration of the human community that God intended. Now, here's the thing. Why does God say, when you are not generous, you're plundering, pillaging? Because God simply says, I've ushered in the kingdom of God. I've ushered in the process of bringing about shalom. I've literally ushered in a place not where you get saved and you get what's to heaven. I've ushered in a plan where, check this out, you guys, thousands of threads that are just a bundled mess of human community. Thousands of threads. God is in the process through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. God begun the process, here it is, of weaving together the human community. The weaving together so that there's interconnectedness, interwovenness of all the pieces of threads that have gone, that have gone awry, all the pieces that have disintegrated, so that God's plan ultimately is that the entire human community would once again look like a beautiful piece of warm fabric that brings protection, flourishing, warmth, and meeting the needs of all. And how do you do that? God says, I have given you resources. What do you want me to do with it? He says, invest it. He says, put it back into the human community. He says, give it so that you will contribute along with me in this work of putting the world back together. And you go, what does that look like? Here's what that looks like. When we give, people in this world who don't have access to drinking water actually get drinking water. You know what that is? That shalom 
coming to earth. When we give back into the human community, it's not just, well, I'm writing a check to help the poor. You know what that is? That means that people in the world at least get one meal a day. You know what that is? That's shalom. Are you following? That means that children all over this world who don't even get basic level of education because of the investment of your resources, they get education. Locally, that means that all the kids get to go to affordable, good schools. Locally, that means that there are certain communities where parks are disintegrating. Parks get renovated so that families can actually go and enjoy time in those neighborhoods. That means the streets are safer for all people. Locally, that means that the poor and the marginalized actually get to live lives of dignity. You know what that is? That's not just being nice. That's bringing about, say it with me, shalom. Shalom. When you and I don't recognize that we're just stewards, when you and I think of ourselves as owners of everything we have, and we spend it on ourselves, we invest in ourselves, and don't give away in large proportions to meeting the needs that would bring about the webbing together, interconnectedness, and the universal flourishing of God's creation that was ushered in by the kingdom that doesn't just happen out of the sky, but it happens when God's people take their resources and invest it heavily into the larger human community. God says, people will see a glimpse of the kingdom. Shalom. Let me end it this way. If you're making $36,934 a year and you work for 45 of those years, let's say you work from ages 20 to 65, is it on the screen? You know what that means? That means that in your lifetime, you will make a million $662,000.30. And you go, well, how did you get to a million seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars Here's how I got to that. You ready? Most typical Americans, by the time they die, even the ones that aren't doing well, will have to their name about $113,000 in assets. Homes, cars, furniture, whatever you own. So typical American in the United States, by the time you die, you will have in your hands a million, or given in your hands to use, a million seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars and thirty cents. Guess what, you guys? The average person in the world is not you. Here's how much the average person in the world makes. The average person in the world makes $675, not a week, not a month, but a year. To which you go, that's exaggerated. Where'd you get that number? There's got to be poor parts of the world where people like make less than a dollar a day. Yes, in India, over a billion people live on less than $2 a day. A billion people. That's the average that a person will make. So let's do our math. Let's say that person, the average person in the world, $675 a year, they also work 45 years. Here's how much they will make in their entire lifetime. $31,375. In their entire lifetime. You and I are sitting here going, I got to make more money. I got to have more resources. I got to. And the average person out there in the world is going, I'm making $675 a year. And in my entire lifetime, I will have been entrusted with $32,000. And what are we saying? And you go, well, those are extreme examples. Columbia missions team is going to Columbia. Let me give you perspective. 
In Colombia, the average wage earner, they make $2,740 a year. Colombia. Some of you have been to Egypt. In Egypt, the average wage earner makes $1,530 a year. Here's a question. What are we going to do with all that we have? Not, how can I make more money to do what I want to do? Don't get me wrong. If somebody comes to you and says, your boss says, hey, I want to give you a raise. Don't sit there and go, oh, no, 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 I don't want a raise, you know. I heard my pastor talk about wealth and I need to live simply. Please say, yes, give me that raise. But the question you need to ask afterwards is, now that I have this raise, now that God has entrusted more in my care, what will I do with all that he has entrusted to me? Let's pray. church I've asked a worship team uh, just to lead us in uh, we fall down as our as our prayer song of response but before we sing that together in the quietness and intentionally I didn't have you know Natalie come up and play the keys so on and so forth at the end of this because I wanted you to hear clearly and I wanted you to hear unobstructed the realities of the privileges and the responsibility that you and I have living in this country, in this city, at this time of history. As you continue on this journey, will you ask yourself, who owns this? Will you ask yourself, Am I being faithful? Who owns this? Am I being faithful? If you need to ask God for forgiveness, by all means, go for it this morning. I know I I had to do this this entire week. (laughs) Moments of repentance. If you're thankful... Praise your God for his generosity to you, for his goodness to you. And the areas that you need to lift up, lift up to the Lord. My holy, 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 we cry, holy, 
this morning. We're going to have very honest conversations that are very practical and real for the next couple weeks. Don't get scared. Continue to come as we involve ourselves in this hard conversation. You guys okay? Not too bad? Not too bad? Okay, okay. The Lord bless you. Go in peace. Have a great, great week. We'll see you back here next week. Take care.